This is CSAP Science and Policy Podcast, where we're bringing you the latest evidence and expertise to improve public policymaking. This week, we're proud to present a bonus episode on social cohesion during COVID-19, which features content from our 2020 virtual annual conference. Hi, my name's Nicola Buckley, and I'm the Associate Director at Centre for Science and Policy, University of Cambridge. In June, Centre for Science and Policy hosted its 2020 annual conference online. As part of that event, I hosted an event on cohesive societies. Today, I'm delighted to be able to share with you a condensed recording from that event. It's a a very rich and and interesting world to be at that interface between the interesting questions coming through the policy makers um, and then researchers um, sort of presenting their uh, ideas and insights and research and evidence. We're pleased to have worked with the British Academy Um, over the last year. We work with a number of learned societies and and with British Academy, um, it has been particularly on this cohesive societies theme, which is a major research and policy theme for the British Academy. So I can begin by introducing our three speakers. They will be Dominic Abrams, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Kent and Chair of the British Academy's Cohesive Societies theme. Jane Kennedy, Head of Research and Data Hub at London Borough of Newham, and Peter Taylor-Gooby, Research Professor of Social Policy at the University of Kent and also a Fellow of the British Academy. So I'm going to invite Dominic to speak first, uh, and he's going to give us an introduction to this theme. So what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about the British Academy's Cohesive Societies programme, the thinking behind it, and then turn to the current situation and present a little bit of evidence, very current evidence about that, and then return to the Academy's interim conclusions about some priorities for understanding societal cohesion, uh, and then hand over to our other two speakers, who I know have a lot of really interesting things to talk about as well. So the Academy began a, a couple of years ago by asking all of its fellowship, which are a thousand or so distinguished academics across the humanities and social sciences, to consider what might be the core aspects or elements of cohesion, because it struck us that this area had been sort of dominated by, uh, in particular, either a concern with sort of local uh, community cohesion and cooperation, or on the other hand, security and integration. But actually, the questions are much larger and much deeper. And so the uh, consultation with the fellowship reveals five key themes or elements of cohesion. I think it's useful to always bear these in mind when thinking about any particular uh, issue or problem to do with cohesion. So the elements were, um, first of all, cultural memory and tradition, which is to say we have to understand the history that people bring with them and that what they understand as the history behind their relationships with, with other communities and other individuals. Identity and belonging, uh, the way that people define themselves either in a, at a particular time or particular place, or in relation to particular other groups, who they feel they belong to and don't belong to. The nature of the social economy, which by which we mean really not just exchanges of material goods, but exchanges of social goods, of time, uh, help, of family relationships, of uh, the things that we all like, shared spaces and parks and all those sorts of things. That's an important aspect of occasion. There's also a kind of question of where are where's the locus of social responsibility? If we're talking about a more or less cohesive society, whose responsibility is it for making that happen? Part of this, of course, is, also, is the legal structure and legal framework, and part of it is the, the normative framework, just the, the consensus that people have about what they can expect of each other and who should be responsible for what. And then the fifth element is to do with the, the extent to which people are taking a long-term view and understanding their context in relation to what might follow and the broader environment for everybody. But what we then did was con- commission some landscape 
reviews, one of which focused on the academic literature to, to understand uh, what different perspectives there were and what people had written about these five themes. A second was a policy review to understand, particularly for the UK, what the policy landscape was like. So I've already mentioned two of the key foci of policy. One, one is sort of locality and uh, local community cohesion, and the other one is uh, integration, security, and all those kinds of things. So those two themes emerged very clearly, but there were others as well, and the policy review exposed and revealed a lot of those. And then we held a, a large-scale seminar to draw together the learning from both of these reviews. Uh, and there's another one uh, coming ahead, by the way, on faith and belief, to try and figure out what we learned and what, what we didn't know yet, what might be important for us to think about. So some of the key findings. One of the interesting points, I think, was that, that when we start talking about societal cohesion, it's very often reactive. Uh, there's been a terrorist event or uh, an extreme weather event, or in this case, a pandemic. So we start talking about cohesion when confronted with these, these crises. And that's kind of a slightly curious way to go about things. It would be like if you only ever discussed education when you discovered that somebody couldn't read a particular sign. So that's a bit strange, really. There's a lot of definitional ambiguity. Different people may be talking about cohesion but they're meaning very different things about it. The advantage is that it brings a lot of people into the conversation. The disadvantage is that people are often talking at cross purposes when they're discussing cohesion. Uh, another element was that cohesion seems to be um, often depicted as a positive goal in its own right. Wouldn't it be nice if everything was very cohesive and we were all very cohesive? And actually, I think that's a questionable assumption. Uh, sometimes cohesion is not such a great thing. There's also a distinction that needs to be made between cohesion as a process, as something that is, is fluctuating fluid and changes over time, or as a destination, the place that we might eventually reach. And again, you find in the discussion of the concept that that is rather variable, different people use it in different ways. I think one of the important points is that there are both social and structural components of cohesion. So there, there is the, the context, as it were, the framework within which it uh, changes and emerges and forms. And there's also the social fabric that uh, enables it to happen. And those two things uh, are often confused, I think, in, in the way that people assess or discuss it. And of course, it arises at multiple levels, different geographical levels, national, regional, local, uh, neighbourhood, but also different social levels, different categories of people, different sets of people who are in particular circumstances, organisations and so on. So I think uh, it's a very clearly a very complex phenomenon. That doesn't mean we shouldn't work on doing what we can with it. Politically, of course, it's always been something that um, prime ministers like to, to refer to. Uh, successive Conservative prime ministers have tried to set the goal of a cohesive society. Here was David Cameron. It was Theresa May with her shared society. And Boris Johnson, of course, says we're all in this together with the coronavirus. Now, the idea is that by prioritising national unity, that somehow everything is going to be easier to address and to resolve. Again, I think it's a somewhat problematic and questionable assumption and one that doesn't really stand up to academic scrutiny. And indeed, when you look at what these same politicians tend to do, and, and this is shown the left and the right, by the way, it's not a dig at this particular government. What you find is that the rhetoric or arguments about unity and cohesion often go hand in hand with a narrative about conflict, uh, whether it's defeating the, the virus, defeating terrorists, or defeating the opposition party. And actually, when you think about cohesion, it almost always involves both of these elements, unity and conflict. So if we think of the Black Lives Matters protests, you know, here's a, a largely peaceful 
very large congregation of people, which might look like a picture of great cohesion, but of course, uh, you know, in the context of there being structural discrimination against particular groups, it's maybe not surprising that the, you, this can also descend into conflict and a battle and a fight. At the same time, at the individual level, you get really impressive individual acts of kindness. So the concept of cohesion as a unitary thing uh, is, is problematic. Even during the, the pandemic, um, what we also find is that uh, certainly the media, but, but people want to find something to blame, someone to hold accountable. Uh, they point to deviations from the rules as ways of reinforcing those rules, uh, whether it be your next door neighbour, an individual or a stigmatised group, which is targeted uh, by a national newspaper and others, or whether it's um, someone highlighting uh, some structural or policy uh, strategy that's causing unfair differences between groups, in this case, age discrimination. So are we in it together? Well, uh, so I'd like to just present a little bit of data to you. We've got a lot of different measures in, in the research we've been doing, so I'm just going to show you a very tiny corner of uh, what is a more complicated picture. Uh, we asked people in some successive surveys in three parts of Britain, I'm sure Scotland, Wales and Kent, uh, if you think of this as sort of three corners of the island, we asked them about their perceptions of social division and unity. And we'll start back in December. Over 70% of people thought that the UK and Europe and Scotland versus England were becoming more divided from each other, that the gap between the wealthy and the poor was becoming greater, and that about 50% thought that the young and old were becoming more divided. So actually, I think you could say that there was a pretty substantial sense of social division. By the time we get to May, and we're into uh, just over a month after lockdown, what you see is quite a remarkable shift. So now, Fewer than half of respondents think the UK is becoming divided, more divided from Europe. Only about 50% think Scotland and England are becoming more divided. The picture for Remainers and Leavers remains about the same, so that, that doesn't change. There are people perceiving less division between the wealthy and the poor, and considerably less between young versus old. By the time we get to last week or this week, well, what we're finding is that the sense of division that existed back in December is strongly beginning to return. Divisions between the UK and Europe, now the majority see those as growing. The majority see the divisions between Scotland and England as growing. The majority see the divisions between the wealthy and the poor as growing. And we're creeping up here with the young versus old divisions. And notably, Brexit has come back. The Remainers and the Leavers are now perceived as being, again, coming more and more divided. So what we see is a, a, a quite rapidly changing picture, but one that nonetheless, I think, should alarm us because there is clearly a strong sense of social division. Uh, and that, I think, is a matter for concern. So I'd just like to mention now um, some of the priorities that the Academy uh, in its consultations has uh, divined for deeper investigation. The priorities include things like having a much better handle on our measurement and understanding of social cohesion so that we can actually develop policy that is more sensitive to what is happening, what is changing and why. Trying to understand how we deal with differences, how we deal with inequalities uh, and the role that um, building cohesion might have towards addressing those problems. We have um, further reviews uh, going on with the Academy and I would refer you to its webpage. Well, I better stop there, I think, and I'll leave you with, uh, with the thought that cohesion is a serious issue. And I'm glad that Jane and Peter are here to tell us more about it. Thank you very much, Dominic. That's a really fascinating overview. And I wonder if I could follow up, Dominic, with a question I found interesting, which I know has come up in previous CSAP discussions, is the sort of thing about whether in-group empathy is the same as out-group antipathy. 
Um, and then there's a question following that about whether uh, social media exacerbates that. But is, is a, is, are strong bonds within in groups, does that always sort of correlate with, with uh, sort of less positive feelings about out groups? No, absolutely not. Um, so it rather depends. So, for example, if you look at the, the leave and remain thing, it's probably a good example. In Scotland, people who uh, want uh, Scottish independence also strongly want unity with Europe. So it's not the case that the two things always go hand in hand, but they do go hand in hand where you've got a direct conflict of interest. So uh, if there's a conflict of interest, for example, between Scotland and England or Westminster, then you find Scottish people becoming more antipathetic, less empathetic towards English people and more proud, if you like, and, and focused on being Scottish because there's a conflict over resources and power with Westminster. So these things are always in the context of particular relationships between groups. So in-group empathy or in-group love does become stronger if there's a clear outgroup with whom you have a conflict, um, but not necessarily so. And often you can find that people have nested identities, so you can be Scottish with, within being British, within being European, and all of those are positive. They're not necessarily in conflict with each other. So it's not necessarily the case. It depends how it's managed. And that's where government and local authorities and others have significant responsibilities about how they approach these issues. What we're really pleased about is that next we're going to have one of the CSAP policy fellows, uh, Jane, to talk about this. So uh, Jane really combines an academic interest in so many of these questions with lots and lots of day-to-day -day responsibilities in a very busy London borough. Over to you Jane. Thank you. So Newham's N8 stops on the uh, Jubilee line from Westminster. We are the third largest borough in London with a population of about 352,000 and we're the 25th most deprived place in the country. Newham's also a very young, very diverse borough median age of 32 and we've got a 70% BME population and in 2018 we had um, a new mayor Roxana Ferrez who was elected on a platform of bringing in a community wealth building agenda and developed skills um, within the economy. So we were strong pre-Covid um, but what wasn't strong pre-Covid was our relationship with the um, third sector or or with faith organisations in, in the borough. So I wanted to talk to you today about cohesion in life of COVID and um, our response to it and that of our third sector partners. As a place, Newham's been one of the hard, hardest hit places in the country uh, for COVID, particularly um, high death rates in, in our BME population, particularly, and really significant economic challenges. Young people have been significantly hard hit, both from an educational um, social mobility point of view, really um, challenging digital access barriers, both in terms of lack of provision, but also lack of broadband in, in homes in the borough. Very few jobs in the marketplace for 16 to 24 year olds, and we're currently working um, with partners to address both of those issues. We've also got and always had um, high levels of relative poverty, particularly after housing costs, but we've had uh, and a, a, a reliance sadly on, on food offers um, from our partners, but that's, that's getting worse as a result of COVID. If that's situating us, I just wanted to talk to you about um, the council's response to that and also about the response of, of our third sector and our faith groups. So at the start of COVID, we recognised we needed to develop a new um, service offer, a rapid service offer, developing and delivering emergency food and provisions to the most vulnerable people in, in the borough. So people over 70, particularly living on their own, people on the um, NHS shield list um, and other 
um, single um, single parents um, and people who needed um, our help rapidly. Um, so we worked together with um, 24 of our local third sector suppliers of food to ensure they had um, food access. But we also had a struggle, and I'm like other boroughs did, in terms of getting dried and tin food provision. So we also ensured that the third sector suppliers also had fridges, freezers and supplies of fresh food um, coming through. In just over a week, we had a new service offer in place, providing food provisions and prescription services to our residents. And in the last few months, um, the help minimum team, the new, the new service, has been working with colleagues across sector, across of schools, police, health and our pharmacies, but also the third sector and our faith groups. And we've also seen a, an increasing number of mutual um, aid and help, self-help groups spring up across the borough, which have grown out of the COVID response that we're also been um, supporting. The Help Newham offer has been delivering food and prescriptions, and we've also got a befriending service for residents. One of, one of the big issues we've seen in adults and also in young people has been the growth in um, some mental health challenges from, um, from arising from lockdown. So it's been, well, how can we work with partners? to address some of the challenges we've already got in terms of poverty but those challenges have got worse in the last few months. We've also been working with partners and through schools and uh, children's services colleagues to take food to uh, vulnerable children and their families and to undertake um, welfare checks on those children at home. I wanted to share um, some quick um, figures, uh, quick facts and figures about our service and how we've been supporting uh, the society. So we've helped about 30,000 um, vulnerable residents over the course of lockdown. We provide a weekly befriending service to 600 residents who have particular loneliness, potentially mental health challenges, and we've delivered 45,000 parcels of food since uh, since the end of March. We've also secured through the private sector 150 tonnes of food that we We've distributed um, both through our own delivery mechanisms, but also that of the, the third sector, the 24 organisations I've mentioned previously. And we've delivered 11,000 prescriptions to people who or either shielding or were vulnerable. I couldn't, couldn't get out to pick up their prescriptions. We've had a fantastic response from the community, but we're told by our local partners in the third sector that demand for food banks is growing every day. The economic challenges for the borough are getting worse. And we've seen a substantial number of no recourse to public funds and asylum seeking um, families um, in real destitution, um, needing needing support through the third sector. Because we know we can't support um, everyone, so we've been supporting those um, families uh, as a council at most, uh, most at need. But we've also been working um, with our third sector partners, 150 different organisations, and we've developed a mapping-based tool for residents so that they can see um, where they live and who they can get support from on a map. And then they can contact those people to get either food support or mental health support or whatever else um, those partners are delivering for them. We also have a weekly survey to the 150 third sector organisations to assess the impact on them from COVID and what support they need from us to stay open. And we've been providing a small grants programme during this time as well for the third sector partners who need a small amount of help through COVID. But we know from talking to those partners and from talking to local charities 
that they've been particularly hard hit and some of them can't open because they've got skill shortages. So we've been tapping into the capacity in our local residents. And in just five days, we designed and launched a new skills bank service where we've been connecting um, residents uh, with skills in things like accountancy, digital, ICT, law, um, business consulting and bid writing, particularly with third sector partners who need that help. Um, so that enables them to stay open and support community. That service has been um, an enhanced brokerage service. So we've been supporting the relationships between um, the 94 volunteers that we've currently got in the books with the voluntary and community and faith groups who need that support. And then we've got placement um, supports um, once placement starts um, from us uh, to facilitate um, that, that co-working. I think what we've seen in COVID actually has been a real strength of, of community. We have some real success stories. COVID has enabled us to be much more cohesive in the way we work with our local partners and hopefully um, how we work with our local partners in, in the future, how we support the third sector in becoming a more cohesive, more cohesive borough. So there are some positives, but it's there, there are some real unique challenges for Newham as a result of COVID. Thanks. Thank you, Jane. That was very interesting to hear about this um, rapid response uh, and work with the voluntary sector. And I think there's a lot of reflections there on um, that we can return to on, on the sort of COVID as this external threat that somehow we've been more unifying than, uh, than others. So I'm going to turn now to the third of our speakers, um, Peter uh, Taylor Gooby, and he has um, a long uh, track record in research on the UK welfare state um, and uh, all aspects of social policy. So over to you, Peter. I really want to talk uh, under the title of social cohesion, particularly thinking about COVID and also about what I call the divisive welfare state. And the basic point there is that uh, the welfare state has traditionally been seen as concerned with social cohesion and particularly with managing class inequalities in capitalist market societies and managing those inequalities in such a way that the system keeps going. That tradition has tended to move more and to change as we move to a society that's fragmented in complex ways, not simply about social class, but we have major age, regional, ethnic identity divisions, also divisions between very wealthy and middle groups and very low income groups. The welfare state has become concerned with maintaining those divisions and advantaging particular groups much more than maintaining a system of equality and balance between the various groups in the population. And increasingly, the ideology that underpins it has become an ideology that's much more concerned with equality of opportunity in a very unequal society rather than equalities of outcome between different social groups. And associated with this, you get concerns about the undeserving poor, the stigmatization of the groups who are vulnerable and lose out. So that's really the sort of context I want to speak in. And I want to make a couple of other points. It's often pointed out that COVID brings out all the tensions and conflicts in society, the panics about food, 
the way some businesses are sacking uh, staff and taking the opportunity to restructure, but that it's also about the expression of humanity, generosity, that are not normally available in our society, the clapping, the volunteering for the NHS, but all the support that people have given to local authorities that James talked about, and also the way in which people have tended to look after and contact neighbours. So there's both capitalism and individualism, but there's also kindness. I've been engaged in a bit of research looking at food banks with a colleague, Thomas Petracek here. Food banks have expanded massively since around about 2010. There were very few for then, now they're about 2,000. They're not really big deals in cash terms. I suppose in normal times, they would give out about £12 million worth of meals a year. That's changed recently, of course. They're held very high in public esteem. They're the respectable face of the voluntary sector, if you like. Also, something like a third of the people questioned had given uh, food donations to food banks in the last year. So there's a lot of support there. And the standard model of a food bank is that they collect donations of food from the general public and then volunteers parcel them up and use various means to distribute them to needy and vulnerable people. What we did in our research was look at what's happening in terms of cash appeals by food banks. Normally, appeals by food banks would raise very little, about £20,000 a month. That's equivalent to perhaps 7,000 meals. And food banks, of course, have other sources of income from supporters, from charitable trusts that give grants and so on. In the crisis, the demand on food banks doubled nationally. Suddenly, you had a huge escalation in the number of people who were desperate to get food at the same time as food donations collapsed because of all the problems of distribution to supermarkets and panic buying. Uh, we made an appeal on GoFundMe and other food banks made similar appeals. And we developed a data scraping uh, technique that enabled us to download all the data on all the appeals by food banks and similar operations. And you can trace how the amounts coming in from the general public tracked very closely the number of COVID cases. As COVID cases went up late February, particularly from early March, the amount raised by food banks rocketed. And uh, from about £20,000 a month, it went up to about three quarters of a million in the first three weeks of the real crisis. And it's dramatic illustration of public generosity. The other thing that's happening, particularly since the lockdown started, is unemployment is skyrocketing. That's a very large number of people out of work, suffering very sharp declines in income. And those are the people who will need services of food banks. But the other thing you notice about food bank donations, if you track them over time, is they map the numbers of cases quite closely. They went up as cases skyrocketed, but they're now starting to decline as cases decline. We're facing a shift 
from a pandemic crisis where the ideology, as Dominic has explained, is we're all in it together. There's a strong ideology of national unity and there's a strong ideology that people are affected in the same way. Of course, we know that isn't true. Weaker and more vulnerable groups are affected much more severely. The interesting question, as we move into recession, and as the numbers unemployed escalate, what will happen to donations? Food banks will be very hard pressed, I predict. Demand will increase even more. But will we be able to raise the same kinds of money that we've raised in the past three months of lockdown? Will the ideology be an all in it together ideology? Or will it be the traditional ideology? of our society in relation to people who are out of work? Will the concerns be about desert, about stigma issues of are those who are unemployed at the bottom seeing themselves as failures in the labour market and seeing themselves as people who don't really deserve help? So there's a really interesting issue about how, in the context of COVID and the recession that's following it, we're seeing a shift in ideologies and a shift in ideas about social cohesion, perhaps to a kinder and fairer society? Or will we simply see an episode where there's been expression of generosity and humanity, but we're shifting back to business as normal? Is there a new normal or is it the same old normal? The other thing I wanted to talk about really is the welfare state. As I suggested, it's been understood traditionally as cohesive, as a counterweight to the divisive tendencies of market capitalism. Increasingly, our society has become more fragmented politically, socially, and economically. And those divisions haven't mapped simply class lines, regional inequalities are growing rapidly and welfare state investment through local government and so on tends to become more concentrated in the richer regions of the country. You can also talk about age divisions, how the welfare state, particularly since 2010, has been much more concerned to direct resources to older people and to education and has cut back stringently on provision for younger people and for families. We've had the transition to universal credit and the contraction of spending since 2010 on means-tested welfare. Well, you can argue that the COVID crisis and the response to it displayed just the same kinds of social divisions in provision that we've seen in the general trajectory of the welfare state. The proportion of GDP per head we're spending in our total COVID response is getting close to that of Germany, which is the leader in terms of amounts spent. That's actually very striking, I think, because the UK has always been seen as a relatively low spender for a developed country on welfare. Of course, most of that money is sustaining business through a whole scheme of loans to uh, larger businesses, smaller businesses, one-off loans, uh, support for banks, and so on. But uh, there are substantial 
individual support, there's of course the job retention scheme, the slightly greater generosity, but not very much on universal credit and statutory sick pay, uh, support for low-income self-employed and individual self-employed people, the eviction moratorium, which we've seen, and then of course the whole range of local authority schemes and the 3.2 billion from central government to local authorities. So there have been a range of provisions. The point is that those provisions are carefully graded by status in the labour market. We've seen the Resolution Foundation surveys indicate that the 9.1 million people who are on the job retention scheme are receiving something like 90% of their previous incomes. They're not dramatically affected by poverty. It's extremely unsettling. And many of them, of course, will become unemployed as business contracts in the recession and will face very serious hardship. But when you contrast that with people on universal credit, the 2.8 million going up, probably getting to around about 3 million as we speak, the percentage of previous income that people who become unemployed and go straight onto universal credit is round about 50%, much lower than the amounts of money people are getting through the job retention scheme. And we face, of course, the issue that many of these schemes will come to an end over the next few months. And there will be all sorts of pressures on people. If we wanted to have a more equitable outcome from COVID, we could do very simple things. The obvious thing to do is simply to give extra money to child benefit, which of course has been cut back in recent years. That goes to all families. It's a couple of strokes on a computer programme, basically. We could think about universal basic income schemes. We could make universal credit substantially more generous and bring it closer to incomes of other groups. Uh, But we haven't done those things. We've had this stratification of response. And the real question is, where are we going in the future? As we move into recession, will the impulse to cohesion grow stronger, or will we move back to where we were before? Are we all in it together, or are we divided, as we've been divided in our divided society? Thank you very much. So we'll try to get to some of the questions now. And there's a question about, is there anything in the research about whether certain groups of people feel excluded from food banks or mutual aid groups? Yes, definitely. On the uh, exclusion inclusion, the majority of food banks describe themselves as Christian or Christian-led organisations. Mm. And there is an issue about inclusion and exclusion there very clearly. I suspect there are food bank-like organisations in other ethnic and religious communities. Well, I, I know there are but I don't really have much evidence or statistics on them. So there is an issue about social division and food banks. And of course, food banks, must emphasise, are very small. When you compare them to the fact that we've got something approaching a third of children growing up in poverty, according to entirely respectable IFS analyses of government figures, organisations that are giving out roughly £12 million worth of meals a year in normal times are simply scratching the surface. Thank you very much. We've got a question about whether cohesion needs leadership, and if so, who leads? Well, I mean, leadership certainly plays a role in cohesion. 
the more that whoever's leading whatever set of people it is can be seen to represent their interests, their character, their their qualities, if you like, uh, the more they will be trusted and the easier it will be to, for them to build cohesion. But I think there's, you know, a mistrust in leadership, I think, leads to fragmentation of cohesion. So it disaggregates down to more local levels. I mean, I think if, if one considers that people will always have a strong need to have a sense of belonging connection to others. The question is, where do they satisfy that need? How do they find it? Uh, and there are things that both leaders can do to furnish and support those needs. But also, I think, you know, we shouldn't lose sight of the, the nature of the local infrastructure, the fabric of, of both the social and practical infrastructure through which people can connect with each other. I think Jane's articulated very nicely as well, MP, so that, you know, if there's a structure there, a place where people can meet, a forum through which people can connect, a set of relationships that they might already have that they can then draw on in times of need, then you'll see cohesion being manifested through those. If that infrastructure is missing or depleted, it's much, much harder for that to happen. And then people need to look for other places for their sense of belonging. And that might be, you know, some online group, some protest group, some all kinds of different things. We don't know. It becomes much more random, I think. And so and more chaotic. So leadership is important, but it goes hand in hand with the other things, the social context, the social fabric, and the sense of a sort of a, a long-term vision. I mean, one has to have a sense of why we're cohering, what it's for, what it's about, where we're heading. At the moment, I suspect a lot of people are wondering about all of those questions. Jane, what was your experience? So, so you're saying many more connections with the voluntary sector. Do you feel that uh, the borough was able to connect with kind of leaders that you weren't aware were there before, or did people emerge in this situation that um, have been able to take leadership roles that haven't before. So, I mean, just reflecting on Dominic's point about trust, you know, we, we've always had a really strong community trust in the, in the borough, you know, tr trust with us as, as and trust with our elected mayors as, as leaders and that long-term vision and when our previous mayor had been there just, you know, over 20 years as an elected elected mayor in terms of building up that long-term view. Uh, in terms of community leaders, I, uh, yeah, we, we've, we've had the groups that we just have haven't worked with them. Um, so those groups have always existed in the borough, with, with the exception of the mutual aid and support groups that are popping up now. But I think in terms of the, we are taking a more of a community leadership role in bringing those uh, groups together than we did in the past because of COVID. And, you know, we will build on that sort of leadership, bring those groups together and our partners actually going forward as we come out into a recovery stage. So I think that's been a, a real learning point really success story for us in terms of us as that community leadership place place-based role maybe so just a last one there's an awfully big question i'll probably be thinking about for the rest of the day but somebody's asking about a, a national outcomes framework that includes cohesion and whether that would work for uk government would anyone like to speak to the outcomes of, of cohesive society's work and how those are sort of currently measured or could be in future one of the issues with cohesion is it's such a plastic concept and it's got these ideas of unity and humanity, but it's also got ideas about divisions between different groups in it. And I'm always a little bit concerned about an emphasis on cohesion. I mean, it sounds nice. It lives in the house and mm. community. Mm. But at the same time, I would much rather see a concern with equality. Cohesion is actually sometimes defined by academics in terms of commitment to equality, but it never really works. And I'd like to see much more concern with reducing the level of inequalities in our society and not just defining equality in terms of opportunity and then saying it's OK, it doesn't matter. 
economists unequal, so long as they have some kind of chance to get to a higher position. We did big democratic forum work on this recently. You get quite a lot of people saying Britain's quite a, an equal society. Look at Richard Branson. You know, he came from nowhere to be very rich and clearly not aware of his background. But you can see what kind of approach they're taking. I think the um, the point would, is not to get stuck into the idea of we want a cohesive society. It's to, it's to have an analysis that tells us what degree of cohesion and indeed of tension and conflict is most functional for a well-functioning society. And we do need conflict. We need minority groups to, to shout about their interests and we need majority groups to address those interests and to be concerned about them. And that requires conflict, not just unity. But I think if you if you think of it as a, a you know a piece of material, as it were, which has it might have some slightly opaque parts, it might have some very colourful parts, it might, you need a whole variety of things going on there, but you still want it to be a complete piece of material. So I think uh, thinking about cohesion, it, it, it's what should the fabric of society look like? What is a functional, adaptive, and, and you know useful level and type cohesion for us to to function and operate well and to thrive in the future? I think I'd probably add to that, but um, and agree with Peter's point about inequality and addressing inequality issues. You know, we are, as I said, the 25th most deprived borough in the country. We've got great cohesion scores, though. But you know, does that really matter for our local resident? You know, who's you know struggling um, getting access to, to to food banks? I don't think they'd say it did. It's important, but it's it's not the only picture. So we do need to really tackle the root causes of inequality, social mobility. Well, I think we just draw it to a close as we're at time now. So thank you very much to Dominic, Peter, and Jane, and um, we look forward to uh, continuing the discussion with you uh, as well uh, as part of the CSAP effort. So thank you very much. CSAP Science and Policy Podcast is a production of the Center for Science and Policy at the University of Cambridge. This episode was hosted by CSAP Associate Director Nicola Buckley and was produced by me, Kate McNeil. Our guests this week were Dr. Jane Kennedy, Professor Dominic Abrams, and Professor Peter Taylor Gooby. You can learn more about CSAP's work by visiting us on Twitter at CSIPOL or by visiting our website at www.csap.cam.ec.uk. If you have feedback about this episode, or questions you'd like us to address in a future week, please email inquiries at csap.cam.ec.uk. We'll be back with more bonus content throughout the month of September, and please stay tuned for more information about our upcoming second season. Thanks for listening.